Hello and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for joining us today. On today's show, we have on Kurt Nelson, professional hitting consultant and the Northwest Bandits head coach. Kurt works with players from the big leagues to the little league. So on the show, we discuss what his evaluation process looks like from when a person walks into the door for the first time to fine-tuning professional hitters mechanics. We dive deep into hitting mechanics, game planning, timing, and so much more. This episode is so good, and have your notebooks ready, because here is Kurt Nelson. Kurt, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Pleasure. Definitely, definitely. And, and today, I'm, I'm really excited for today's conversation because I know we're going to dive deep into all things hitting, hitting mechanics, game planning, timing, all of it. And so I, I really, you know, I, I want to encourage our listeners to get a notepad and pen ready if they haven't already. But uh, while they're doing that, can you give us a short snapshot of your baseball background and why you decided to get into coaching? Yeah, you know, I, I was playing and uh, about 13 years ago playing college baseball and uh, just kind of knew that uh, I wanted to get into coaching and you know just kind of got hooked up with uh, one of uh, my better friend's dads who was running an organization out of our area He's been a longtime youth coach out here his name is Ray Atkinson and, and I got involved with uh, the organization he was coaching in called the Northwest Bandits and just started doing some some off you know offside hitting lessons and just kind of you know just easing into that kind of um, coaching kind of realm and you know, just kind of took off from there. And, and, you know, it's always been about giving back. And, you know, I've had a, a awesome opportunity in my career of learning from so many different coaches. And, and, you know, whether that was as a player or as a coach now, um, you know, it's just, it's always been about, you know, trying to search for that best way to get the, the hitter you're working with to, to get to the next level with their career and their swings. And that whole process has just been an absolute blessing and so fun to do. So, um, you know, that's kind of why I got into it originally. It was just kind of, it was, you know, where I kind of saw myself heading in, in, in life and what I wanted to do was, was impact players the way that I was impacted by some of these great coaches and, and dads and friends around us. So, um, you know, that's the, the short story to the, the long story, but, uh, you know, we got the best job in the world besides playing. I love it. I love it. And, uh, the friend you're referring to is Cody. So you guys played together in college, right? We did. Yeah, we did. We played for a couple of years together at Everett Community College. Um, we also grew up playing for the Seattle Stars, and uh, he was kind of on the, the younger team. We were My team was a year older, and uh, we were kind of, uh, I don't know, world beaters, if you want to say it. You know, we got national trophies left and right, and we were always ranked in the, the higher rankings of select baseball back then. So that was a lot of fun and really an incredible experience. So I've actually known Cody since he was probably 12, 13 years old. And I've known his dad since the same time, um, but we really got a lot closer in college and, you know, playing together. And, and then we actually started coaching together. Actually, the first team we ever coached was a 13 year old team. Um, I was 21, he was 20 years old and um, kind of the rest is history a little bit. We actually coached together at uh, every community college for three years and got to win a championship there, which was really exciting. And that was kind of the beginning of his college coaching career. And then obviously we all know that that's uh, taken off into the professional rankings and, and whatnot. So extremely excited for him on that, that front, but uh, yeah, I've known him for quite some time. So it's been a pleasure getting a chance to work side by side with someone that's so talented and gifted in what he does. Oh, definitely. And, and I haven't known him as long as you have, but I could definitely say the same thing. It definitely is a pleasure. And I think that 
I and I've told several people this. I think I learn something every time that that he presents or every time that he talks, which is you know, for being a learner is is somewhat I don't want to say rare, but it's it's a really neat thing to be able to to do whenever one of your coworkers is like that. And I know you feel the same way, but let's go ahead and and, and talk about you and let's talk about just some different things that that you've got going on. So like you said, you uh, you work for Ray, uh, Cody's dad, Ray Atkinson, and, and you guys uh, he owns a facility out there. And so when, let's say that a player walks in the door, okay, for the first time, what are some different things that you do to evaluate that player? Yeah, I think it's going to kind of depend on the level of the player, right? Uh, the level of player is going to kind of dictate some of the, the different routes. If a professional is walking through the door and I, and I haven't worked with them before, there's a lot of research that's going to be done. Um, you know, I've, I've heard the, the name deep dive um, a few different times kind of comes to mind. And really, you're going to pretty much pull up game video from, you know, that year, previous years. Um, you're going to pull up Baseball Savant is a phenomenal resource for looking up some some of the advanced stats and some of the data that we can utilize. Um, you know, so we're going to know more about those type of players going into it and doing our research, you know, previous to that. So I think that we you have a little bit better idea of what you're getting into than maybe, uh, you know, a 13, 14-year-old kid that walks through the door for the first time that you've just never seen swing. Right. So it's going to be a little bit different route on those, but it let, you know, let's just, you know, hypothetically speaking, we'll just say that, you know, a 14 year old kid walks through the door for the first time, you know, realistically, I'm not going to implement anything. I want to see him move first. I want to watch him do what he does and just get a feel for how's he moving? What's he thinking? You know, just trying to pick his brain, you know, as he's kind of going through maybe his little warm up process, if he has one, um, you know, asking him, you know, whether, you know, what he's thinking about, what he's trying to do, you know, what he's been taught. And, and I think the more information that we can gain, you know, before we start jumping into some changes, the better we're going to be. Um, you know, we're going to look at the setup. We're going to look at how he's moving in relationship to time. You know, what's the relationship with the ground? Uh, obviously, you know, the, the bat path, you know, how are we staying in the zone? Are we short and compact? You know, all the, all the small details you're going to look at, um, you know, they kind of all add up to a bigger picture of maybe what he's thinking or what he's been taught. So, you know, if we can change the mind first, you know, it's going to be easier to make some adjustments um, than just trying to force feed some adjustments to somebody or just throwing drills on someone for no reason. Right. Um, I think mobility plays a ginormous role. Um, you know, a lot of hitters are moving from positions that might not be the right position for their bodies. You know, so realistically, we got all of our movement prep stuff. We got all of our you know, drills that we can apply, but we have to do it individually. It's got to be individually based um, upon that per individual. And really uh, to us, there's really no absolutes. You know, there's some, there's some things that are pretty darn close, you know, timing, balance, path, like those things are going to be relatively close to absolutes, but there's really no such thing. I mean, everyone's a little bit different. You got to find the best route for that individual. So I think it's a cool, cool opportunity every time someone new walks through the door is to you know, it's almost a new puzzle. I and mean, they're obviously coming to hit with you because they want to hit better and they want to continue to progress and get better. So that individual route per that guy is going to be a really fun experience. And it's a little bit different for each guy, but um, I think the level of play and, you know, what information you have on that hitter going into it is important. And then figuring out how they think in relationship to that is going to be enormous. No, I love that. And so whenever you're, you know, you're talking with an amateur player that you can't really deep dive on, what are some different questions that you like to ask? And, and I'm thinking, you know, for our listeners, a lot of them are in the amateur 
uh, realm, and I, I would say most are. And so if, if they're wanting to ask better questions to, you know, obviously get a better answer and understand where the player is and why they're doing certain things, what are some different ones that you'd like to use? Uh, I know you said everything's individualized, but there may be some questions that are better that get a better answer. Yeah, I think you're, you're probably going to look at some like more generic type questions in that kind of setting. Uh, and then once you kind of get a little feel for that, then you can kind of be a little bit more specific you know, like asking a hitter what their timing mechanism is, you know, what's your timing mechanism? Most hitters probably don't have one. Um, you know, what, what's your, what's your thought on your bat path? What are you trying to do to the baseball? You know, what's your approach right now? What are you, what are you working on when you're sitting on a tee or you're in front of a mirror or you're, you know, with your dad in the backyard, like, you know, just really generalized, you know, specific questions you can kind of go off of those simple, you know, more generic questions, but you know, you're really just trying to get a feel for kind of where he's at. You know, how do you think your hips are moving? That's a big one for me is I talk a lot about how a lot of young hitters are trying to rotate their hips. So they end up trying to do that above the ground instead of getting to the ground and then utilizing the ground as, as our number one source of leverage and, and power to a certain degree. So, you know, that's, that's a big one for me is going to be, you know, what are you thinking that your lower body's doing? Because a lot of guys are thinking about using their legs and thinking about using their feet and in relationship it's about the core and the ground, right? So that, uh, that's going to be more of a specific question. But I, I think that, you know, any kind of question that's going to just give you a little bit more insight on what that hitter is really, truly trying to do to that baseball, um, you know, ball flight's also going to tell you a lot, right? You're going to watch ball flight. You're going to see how that thing's coming off the bat, you know, and some guys just go in there and they're just hooking everything down third base line, you know, flying open and spinning. And you're like, okay, how much of that is a bad mechanic and how much of that is just a terrible approach and really not understanding what he's trying to do to the baseball. You know, that's a, that's a very simple adjustment sometimes for guys is just to change, you know, what you're trying to do to the ball or what, what kind of part of the ball you're trying to attack. Right. So sometimes that cleans things up immediately. So the simplest routes are always the best routes. You know, sometimes things are a lot less simple and hitting is a very confusing thing. So anytime you can take something that's, that's relatively confusing and, and make it simpler and help that hitter understand it better. Um, you know, I think we're taking the right route there for sure. No, I love that. And, and again, it's, this is kind of a, it, it's a tough conversation because you work with guys literally from little league all the way up to the big leagues. And so let, let's just go ahead and dive in. So let's say that, that you have a player that you are working with uh, and you have been for a while. So you guys have come up with a plan of improvement together or some key performance indicator, you know, whatever, whatever it is. But let's say that they that they walk into the door. Let's say that it's me. So whenever I walk into the door, what are some of the first things that I would do whenever I got there? Uh, we're going to activate. We're going to activate first, I think, especially with just a lot of hitters and baseball players in general just specializing in baseball nowadays and, you know, not playing football or basketball or, you know, staying, you know, active in, in some different sports throughout the year. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but – I think it's important to understand that we are a rotational sport and our engine is our spine and our core. And at that point, we have to make sure that we are capable of withstanding that rotational, you know, movements. So getting activated for us is going to be numero uno. Um, you know, you're going to get in here, you're going to hop on a bike, you're going to go over in our little weight room area and you're going to be able to kind of loosen up and get your body activated. Um, we also have a, a bunch of movement prep stuff that are kind of based on, some good moving pieces that we believe in with the swing. So it not only kind of gets the body working in the right way in terms of the mechanics of the swing, 
but it's also activating that body and getting that body more loosened up and ready to actually swing a bat fast, right? So that, that, that's going to be probably the first thing they're going to do is they're going to hop in, they're going to head over into the, the weight room area, they're going to get fully activated, they're going to jump through all their movement prep stuff. And the movement prep stuff is, is really good stuff. There's, you know, a few different drills that we do with, with some, some ball slams against the wall. There's an we call RMT club. That's actually a WEC method, uh, just a warm up club that we kind of swing around a little bit and loosen up with that thing. And then we jump on to a little bit of uh, a PVC drill where we kind of work on stopping, um, and just kind of what, uh, what I've kind of heard termed as uh, hitting your brakes and just kind of activating the core, activating the backside, activating the body, getting the body loosened up. You know, we, we really, we, we kind of, you know, want to make sure that all those different pieces in the swing are loosened up and ready to fire. Um, before we really start jumping into it. So they, they kind of get here a little early, they get through that. And then uh, after that, they're going to hop on to uh, a new tool that we have that I um, can't quite talk about yet. I think we'll probably be having a podcast here in about a month or two, where we're probably going to have an entire podcast talking about it. So it's, uh, it's kind of, uh, my lips are sealed on this one, but it's, it's pretty special. So I, I know for a fact that uh, it's going to be here to stay. And, and it's a pretty cool device that I've had a, a pleasure. And I know that you've had a pleasure of trying out as well. So um, we'll, we'll get onto that in the future, but that, that's part of our activation as well. And I think that uh, it's a, it's a pretty special deal. So once you get through all of that stuff, you're ready to go. You know, I, I think you, you're pretty ready to go compete. Obviously you haven't seen any timing or anything yet, but our bodies are ready. You know, we, we've, we've prepped ourselves, and now it's time to go hit. Right. So then at that point, you know, if I have another session and session, then as they're finishing up their movement prep, as long as they know how to do it correctly, assuming that they've been with me for a while, they do, then they're able to, you know, kind of switch over and transition. And then they're hopping in while the next group's hopping out and, and we're going from there, you know? So obviously with COVID, it's a little bit different in terms of how many guys we can have in the cage and kind of how we're going through the protocols and, and being ultra safe. So, um, but at the end of the day, that's kind of how you're going to look at walking through the door and kind of activating and getting going. And then we'll progress. We'll progress through your routines, uh, based on the individual. All, all my hitters have different routines. They're not all doing the same thing. Um, you know, even with my team, I, I coach an 18 year old team for the Northwest bandits. And, and when we have our teams in here, you know, I got guys divided up into groups kind of based off of what their routines are. Cause there's always going to be some similarities between guys. You know, these guys are, are flattening out their barrels and they got to work past, you know, these guys are spinning their hips on top of the ground. They got to work on getting ground connection that day. They try and kind of put them into groups and individualize within those smaller group settings. And that's kind of how we attack the team stuff a little bit as well. So, and then you progress through their, their warm up and then they're kind of their daily drill stuff that's kind of, you know, locking them individually in. And then you can kind of start getting into, uh, into some of the angle stuff and some of the challenge stuff and, and, and going from there, you know? So, you know, ultimately it's, going to be that combination of you know getting the body ready to go you know continuing to to build within some of our individual drills and then you got a challenge flat out no that's really really good and i i know that we were talking off air and so we're gonna we're listeners we're gonna dive deep into mechanics and do uh, i know kurt's gonna do a fantastic job of explaining you know the different things that he sees even though we're on audio let's just go ahead and start with, with setup. So let's, you know, like you mentioned, there's no, there may not be any absolutes, but there are a, Hey, a lot of guys do this, right. And you can, you can, depending on how you move, depending on how you finish, how you work through the zone, uh, it all depends. But I, I, you know, I truly think everything starts with setup. 
And so we're going to start there. Uh, as soon as you walk into the box, as soon as you step into the box, what what does a good setup mean to you? Uh, I mean, well, we're all pretty blessed to have, have learned about the, the importance of a good setup from, from the great Doug Lotta. Um, from the second that I started talking, hitting with him about six, seven years ago, that was uh, immediate how important he believed in the setup stuff. And, and you can just see it. I mean, the, the getting in the right position for that hitter um, is just immediately going to translate to a better move, a cleaner move, a more consistent move. You know, so a quality setup to me is going to be in relationship to each individual, but you got to have balance. And I think balance always starts with the head. The head's always got to be in the center. Um, everything's got to be done between the feet. And, you know, getting in a setup where guys are not getting into the quads and the knees. I, I see so many young hitters that are like, hey, get in your legs. And what does that mean? And I think in, in sports, we, you know, we look at sports as an athletic movement just in general. And so people always talk about being on the balls of your feet, or I've always heard like guarding somebody in basketball and hitting is done a lot more flat footed than people think it is, you know? So when we get on the balls of our feet in the box, immediately my weights in my knees, the weights, you know, it's in my quads. It's, it's really, it's not in a balanced position. It's not going to promote me moving in balance. It's not going to promote me getting connected to the ground better. Um, you know, so ultimately we're, we're looking for, the glute we're looking for the butt we're looking for the center of gravity you know and some guys are wider you look at chris bryan i think he's got a great move and it really works for him within his body type and what he likes but you know is that move the right move for everybody no you look at bellinger it's the complete opposite right so you, you kind of try and find that move that's that's based on comfort but it all kind of starts from that setup position and you're always going to go off balance and balance is kind of like one of those ones where like if i'm balancing on one foot like people think of that as balance and, and really that's just like our capability of balancing, right? Like the actual human body in balance, you go look at a, a you know, one of those hanging skeletons in science class, you're going to see what the human body in balance actually looks like, right? The head's between the feet, everything's between the feet and, and it's like a, like a 3DX, right? Everything kind of has a, a counter move to when we start moving in different ways. So setups to us is, is going to be so important because it kind of sets you up to move better. It sets you up to move more consistently. Um, and it's a little bit different for everybody. You got to find that right position for them. Sometimes it's the mobility stuff, you know, setting up the back foot in the right position, you know, based on, you know, maybe some ankle mobility or some hip mobility. Um, you know, sometimes it's just, you know, hand placement or front shoulder placement, you know, based on getting that body in balance. And, you know, the, the, these athletes that we're working with, especially the guys at the highest levels, they're, they're some of the best athletes in the world, right? And some of the best athletes in the world are also some of the best compensators. You know, you can go on, you can go on major league baseball and go find, you know, a whole bunch of hitters that don't move the exact same way that maybe I'm trying to get a specific hitter to move like, but that doesn't mean it's not better. Right. It just means that, you know, he just doesn't move that way. He might be actually compensating, but he's just such a good athlete that he can compensate and get away with that. So we're really not trying to get away with anything we're, we're trying to maximize each individual um, you know, to, to maximize what they're capable of doing, you know, so it's good stuff. No, I really like that a lot. And, and so again, I, I'm going to throw out some different things that I know, uh, that I know that, that you, that you like, and, and luckily for our listeners that I, I know you well enough and I know your methodology behind it. So we can, we can dig deep into this, but whenever, whenever you're talking about a setup is let, let's just go over, you know, give us a drill or, you know, I, I know that you're big into mirror work is, is it something that 
I mean, we, we now understand the methodology behind what you're trying to teach. And now what are some ways that you, that you put them in a setup or you give them a drill to help with, uh, and, and again, setup is setup can mean a lot of different things and balance can mean a lot of different things, but what are some different things that you do as far as just helping them feel a good setup, understand what that means? Yeah, I love the mirror. I think the mirror just doesn't lie. We we talk a lot about video. Video is great, but it's it's after the fact. You know, you can take a round on video, and then you can go sit down afterwards and look at what you were doing. But in a mirror, it, it's it's instant. It's it's right as you're doing it, you can see, right. So maybe we're talking about someone that that's that's getting set up with a lot of weight on their front foot, and you know they're a little out of balance in their first move. They have to push off the ground and shift back. You know, so when you get in a mirror, you're going to see that, you know, we're going to see that and we're going to be able to feel that a little bit different. So, you know, sometimes I got a little bit of a, an X on the, on one of my mirrors at the top, kind of where the head's at. And, you know, we'll, we'll put the, the forehead right in the center of the X, just kind of when they're standing next to the mirror, kind of chest on the mirror. And then, you know, we'll say, okay, let's keep your head in that X as we're lifting our, our stride leg. So we can see that our upper body's not shifting backwards as we're picking up. Um, very simple drill to do, but again, it gives them a little bit of a, you know, a goal within just kind of moving. And then there's, there's kind of manipulating how they're lifting to try and find that setup that's going to promote, you know, lifting with as, as least amount of shifting back as possible. So that's uh, that's a very simple drill you can do. Um, I, I really believe in, in, you know, some of the, the reverse training. I think it's uh, co-centric and eccentric is basically we do like a little like stride drill where, you have to make your move like over a bat or we'll have like a piece of wood, like a two by four will be set down in front of your front foot. Um, and you just got to make an athletic move over the board. I'm actually doing it as we're talking right now uh, at the cage. And it just, it's a clean move. Yeah. It's a clean move over the board, but they also have to be able to make a clean move back to their setup from the same position. And you see the guys that are crashing forward and the guys that are kind of diving and landing, you know, with all their weight on their front foot. Um, those guys are going to have to push off to reverse, right? So it's really, it's kind of a stride out to 50-50 and then actually work reverse to, to your setup. And just getting that kind of, you know, forward and back, forward and back and finding that balance within those moves, you know, whether it's on the way down or it's actually on the way back to the setup, you know, I think that uh, there's a lot of value in doing that. And honestly, we, we, we put hitters on, on the mirror sometimes for an hour. You know, you got a guy that comes in here and he's hitting for, you know, 20 minutes and, you know, the move's not clicking. It's like, Hey, get in front of that mirror until it really clicks, you know, and just, you know, spend some really quality time, just kind of feeling it out and figuring out within some of the parameters we're talking about how your body needs to move to accomplish this. And if they can't find it, then, then we're probably looking at the, the, the move in general as potentially not the right move for somebody. Right. You know, I I don't see a lot of people teaching Goldschmidt's move and Nelson Cruz's foot down early move. Um, you just don't see those moves being taught very long or very often. And it's like, man, like those work for those guys at the highest level for a long time. That's proven that they can do it. And, uh, you know, so there's, there's, there's not going to be a, a specific move I'm going to teach to everybody, you know, but we, sometimes it's kind of trial and error, right? You got to kind of trial and error that a little bit, see what translates and what doesn't just because it might work in flips does not mean it might, you know, it works at 60 feet. You got to test it out, you know? So the, the drills in the mirror to me is going to be super valuable just because you're seeing what you're doing in real time, you know? And, and ultimately there's no fooling balance. And I think that if you can have a little marker on your head or something where they're just a little bit more aware of kind of where they're at in space, 
it's going to be huge for him. So, oh, really good. And, and again, I appreciate you taking the time to really uh, taking the time to try and explain that because you're doing it over audio and you're doing a fantastic job, but it's it's definitely not easy. So now we we've talked about the setup and the next thing. What what I'm assuming I think you use the term gather uh, gather into your forward move. So what is that? Again, best way you can do it. Uh, what does that look like for you? What are you looking for? What are some different uh, different key moments or points that you're looking for and is you know obviously uh give us all that you can through audio but it's definitely tough but but what do you got on that the term gather as far as i know it came from uh craig wallenbrock and and some of his guys uh and just the the idea of it is that you know we're not just jumping forward we we don't want to jump at the ball now some guys are going to be pretty simple you know, Bellinger kind of feet together and just kind of moves out. Bellinger really doesn't have much of a gather. He's kind of just a go, right? So everyone's, it's going to be individually based on, you know, whether someone's actually truly, you know, what's what some people might consider a gather, but really ultimately we're trying to load against the back leg and the back foot because we don't want to load over the top of it. It is the shifting back, getting over the back foot is, is really our body getting out of balance. And some guys can do it a little bit and compensate, and get back into balance and be relatively consistent doing it, you know, and, and to each his own, but it's really not what we're teaching. It's not what we believe in. You know, we're really trying to promote a forward move to, to for timing. Um, and within that gathering into the back leg and into the inside part of the back leg and the inside part of the back foot, um, really creates, I think for some, it keeps the body together. You know, it, it keeps us from, from reaching, you know, a lot of guys want to kind of shift back and then load the, you know, the hands on the back move. And, you know, when, when you continually watch, you know, great swings from years and years, you're not seeing the hands loading up on a back move for the most part. You know, I'm sure there's, there's five guys you could probably find that do it to a certain degree, but mm-hmm. they're still within balance uh, to a certain degree in, in different shapes or forms. But ultimately, I really truly believe that the, the gather is a great move for a lot of young hitters that, you know, especially against velocity that's that's not great at the younger levels, you know, is sometimes just telling a hitter, hey, I just want you to go on handbrake. Uh, they're going to be lunging in way too early against some of these, these slow pitchers. So creating a, a little bit more sense of rhythm and tempo within kind of that gather, but making sure everything's staying together um, is going to be huge for that. Um, I, I think that when you're talking about gathering, you're, you're kind of looking at the stride leg is kind of working kind of underneath the front shoulder or underneath the front hip. Um, we're kind of picking up underneath ourselves, and it just kind of keeps that foot from kind of wanting to reach out. Right? You see those guys that kind of you know sit back and kind of separate and kind of have that reach move and, and kind of get stuck over that back leg. And then at that point, there's a lot of panic. There's a lot of spin. Um, we don't have the ability to drive that posterior chain through the baseball you know, big word for our backside. So ultimately I, I think that the gather is a, is a, just a, a one way to, to talk about how we're kind of getting our weight ready to move ready to time, um, without, uh, kind of leaking backwards and, and shifting back too much. So and the, the gathers, I like the word too. The word just kind of, to me, just kind of resonates, um, very well and just kind of naturally. It's kind of like, almost like the calm before the storm in a way. Sure. Sure. Now, uh, again, I'm I'm trying to uh, trying to help with how to explain this. This this is really hard, by the way, to our listeners of of explaining these these different <laughs> moves over audio. 
But whenever you see a a gather that's good versus a gather that's bad, I know you mentioned you don't want to shift back. So that's basically I'm I'm picturing this in my mind of you're shifting like eighty percent of your weight to your back leg, and uh, and maybe your knee goes outside of your foot. Uh, is that kind of what you're explaining? So, so tell us, tell us what to look for whenever we do get the chance to look on video, uh, good versus bad. Yeah. And, and I think the good versus bad one is always a, a tough way to kind of put something because for every guy that I think is potentially a bad move, um, they, they might be go out there and hit 300 and do well. Right. So it's sure. just like, that's always kind of like that fine line, like guys can compensate guys can do some moves that, and, and still make them work. But ultimately, when I'm looking at it, like when that back knee starts to get outside the back foot and starts to bind out, um, or if, if the back knee stays in, but the back hip starts to slide away outside the back foot, you know, the back shoulder, the hands, maybe you just draw a line off the back foot, you know, and you just go, you know, just draw a line right there and just press play on the film. And, and what you're going to see is you're going to see guys that are in balance. Nothing ever gets outside that line. You know, guys, some guys might get the knob, you know, or the hands like right over that line or, or close to the back foot, but they're really not getting outside of that back foot. And with a lot of big shift guys, you know, especially a lot of young guys um, and within a lot of young information that, that kids are hearing and literally take your weight back, take your hands back. Well, now the weight's getting over the back foot. The hands are well outside the back foot. We're, we're immediately out of balance and there's going to be some form of, of compensation there. Um, at some point to, to try and regain balance, whether we know it or not. So, you know, the gather to me is, is, is you imagine yourself up against a wall, right? Like my back, so like my, the back of my body's up against the wall and I have to go forward off that wall. Like we're really trying to be able to kind of gather with rhythm without running into that wall and shifting back. Um, that'd be kind of a, a visual that we might be able to see through, you know, without actual seeing video of this, but it's uh, it's definitely working inside that back foot. You know, I like to see, and this is just kind of a preference, but I like to see the back hip is inside the back knee and the back knees inside the foot. All right. So you kind of see hip, then sure. knee, then foot, rather than seeing all three stacked over each other or in some other uh, shape or form. So that kind of sets us up for, uh, I've heard the term horse straddle. I've heard the term, um, a gap, it kind of sets us up to make sure that our backside's not collapsing in as we're, as we're landing. Um, it just gets us a more unique ability to get to the ground and then fire, uh, which just promotes more adjustability and, and better use of the ground in my opinion. So, sure. No, and, yeah, definitely. And you mentioned obviously there there are exceptions to every rule, and we're not locking locking you into anything. But you're just again, we're trying to get them to move better. And you've noticed some different people that can compensate for not moving as well because they're elite athletes and and just different things like that. So th- this is all stuff to to definitely keep in mind because uh, there's always an exception to the rule. You mentioned a gap is, are you talking about like the legs when like somebody's legs, whenever you move out, it should look more of like an a than like a, like a tilted over a maybe. Yeah. The a is kind of like when you're getting to the ground, like when guys are getting to their 50, 50 launch and you kind of look at the knees and then the lower body, it's, I've also heard the word horse straddle. I believe that both of those kind of terminologies have came from the Wallenbrock crew as well. Um, but yeah, it's kind of like, it looks like you're kind of straddling a horse. So you kind of have that little bit bigger gap between your knees. Um, and, and everyone's mobility is a little bit different. Like you look at Yelich, he's not going to have a giant gap between his knees. His knees are more pinched in. Um, 
you know, so, and his mobility is going to be completely different than, you know, someone like Mike Trout's. Um, so, you know, ultimately it's just like, how are we getting to the ground? And then are we still having our backside when we're in the ground to fire with, you know, if my backside's already gone, cause I've lost my heel connection or my back knee is just, you know, completely gone. Then at that point, you know, we've lost all our power, our butt, our glute is our power. Okay. So as we're picking up our front foot underneath our front, uh, our front hip, what what is the back? What is the role of the back foot? Because I I think in my notes here you said that you wanted to hold it down as long as possible. That you and earlier you said you didn't want anyone to get on their toes to uh, engage their quads, and so you're just basically talking about as the front foot picks up, you want the heel to get into the ground and, and hold it. Yeah, heel connection is huge, and obviously I think it, when you start to see. You know, if I throw you 97 in, your back heel might come up a little bit earlier and, and you hit a home run, right? So it's like some of that's just kind of a byproduct of different timings and pieces. But the guys that are out of that back heel, we do a little quick test, and everyone that's listening to this could probably do this right now, is if you get to like a 50-50 hitting position and then you pop your back heel up out of the ground, try and flex your back butt cheek. And you really can't. And, and if you can't flex that butt cheek, you don't have your glute. It's gone. So at that point, you, you've pretty much lost your power. And, and, and you've started your kinetic chain at that point, right? So if we can get to flat feet and then launch, now we're truly going to maximize a, the, the force that we can create off the ground. And then I, I have that backside to be able to thrust through that ball to create, you know, more effortless power. You know, that's kind of what we see a lot of times on the old rap sodos and some of the hit track stuff is guys are trying to create production and force production with the upper body. Um, and it, it's a very forceful move and it really, you know, opens up some different holes in the swing that uh, these pitchers are pretty good at, uh, you know, kind of pumping it in there on us. And at that point you get a scouting report against yourself that you can't touch a slider down and away. The game gets a little bit tougher, right? So it, to me, it's, it's the, the value of getting the flat feet and utilizing the ground properly it's going to promote more adjustability and give you just more solutions to the different problems that you, you might have, you know, in terms of what you're facing and what they're doing for you or where they're throwing you. So sure. Sure. that's huge. The, the heel connection stuff, you got to be careful because you don't want a guy to start getting stuck on his back foot, mm-hmm. you know, overthinking something. I think that's a, a really always a good reminder is, is like whatever we're doing, we're trying to make it done athletically as possible. Um, and that's where the setup I think becomes so important and the move from the setup becomes so important because if my move is better from my setup, then I'm probably more likely to get to the ground with my back heel in the ground still, you know, at least more consistently um, than before. So that's always the route I'm going to look for. I want to look for the root cause, right? I want to look for, you know, what's the, what's the ultimate piece that's affecting this. And we're always going to go to timing first. I mean, that to me, you know, you can have the best swing on the planet and, and flips or T work. And then all of a sudden when the timing's off, we throw out, you know, everything we're doing and we find a way to make contact. And oftentimes we call that a panic swing mm-hmm. um, and, and hitters are just constantly getting themselves out because of it. So we improve the, the setup, we improve the move. The heel connection should be better just by nature of them being in a better position for their body and, and moving more in balance, right? Mm-hmm. So that, that would be the natural way to go about that, you know? And sometimes there's some drills. We do some heels down stuff, you know, where you're just kind of, you know, in a, in a little bit wider base and you're just keeping both heels in the ground and we're just working the path with, without, you know, rotating the ground rotating our lower body at all. And, you know, our core turns as we swing is a new rotational sport. Your spine is your engine. You got to rotate your core naturally. Right. So 
as I'm swinging the bat, I'm going to rotate, but I'm trying to keep the back heel on the ground just to get hitters to, to feel the start of that swing being done um, kind of without, you know, the actual use of, uh, you know, spinning my hips or popping that back heel up. You know, the heel and the calf, you know, these guys that are just kind of driving the back knee and the heel just kind of pops up early, you know, they're, they're really missing out on a lot of, a lot of ground force and a lot of different uh, adjustability factors that are built into getting to flat feet. No, really, really good. And, and there's a lot of different directions. Uh, I, I do want to come back to timing here in just a minute, but let's, uh, let's, mm-hmm. let's keep talking mechanics. And so we've got the gather to our forward move, uh, and you mentioned to 50, 50, so 50, 50 weight distribution. Uh, what, so uh, when you get to that checkpoint, is there anything that you're looking for on video? Like, let's say that you pause at 50, 50 on video. Are, are there anything, is there anything that you're looking for as far as checkpoints go? Uh, yeah, first of all, I think this is, you're getting into something that's extremely important is the context of what guys are doing. You know, it's funny. I, I sent a video over to a hitting coach a few weeks back because he was talking about drifting and I had a guy that was, you know, striking the ground at 50, 50. And then there was a little bit of a drift or a give, um, into that front leg. And then he smacks a homer and you're like, man, that's, that looks drifty. He looks like he's getting onto that front foot too much but there's no context, right? It's side view. You don't know what pitch he's hitting, you know? So he's got always these drifts and he's never going to hit. And you're like, well, that's a breaking ball. You know, he just bought himself time on a breaking ball and hit a homer. That's a phenomenal adjustment, right? So if we don't have the context of what's going on, then how can we really say what the guy's doing, you know, is off by any means, you know? Now, granted, if a guy's getting to getting to 50, 50, and then constantly drifting onto that front leg on fastballs, then there's probably going to be some issue there. Right? So, you know, ultimately for me, at, at, when we talk about 50-50, I think a lot of hitters, um, you know, they, when we start f- first working into 50-50, especially with some young guys, they tend to get past 50-50. They tend to be on their front foot. They tend to be lunging um, and just losing their backside during that process. And, and that's not the goal. Is really, ultimately, we don't want to pass 50-50 either. And if it's a breaking ball adjustment or something else, maybe I'm just really early with my timing on the fastball, then that's an adjustment on the fly, right? That's really not the goal. But the goal is to be getting down for best fastball in a good quality hitting position. And ultimately from foot strikes to, you know, fastball timing, you're going to see some certain characteristics start to show up, um, you know, kind of within that transition opposed to like on a breaking ball adjustment, you're going to see some different characteristics mm-hmm. based on how he saw it. Sure. So it's a little, it's a little unique, but I think that at 50, 50, you know, we're going to look at the head first, you know, where's the head in relationship to the body because, and, and relativity to the human body being in balance, um, the head's got to be in the center, right? So oftentimes when the hitter's looking at the pitcher and you're looking at video, then you're kind of looking at the side of his head. Um, and we typically are going to go kind of right between the ear and the, the, the kind of back eye, I guess the, the inside eye. Um, and we kind of just draw a line down that kind of split the head in half and go all the way down to the feet. And, you know, you see a, well, you see a healthy amount of guys that are a little bit behind center. You know, some guys are a little bit more, directly in the center you know you look at trout i think he's really center he's like ultimate 50 50 in my opinion um and you know you look at like charlie blackman and look at what he's doing right now it's unbelievable and when you look at him at you know at his launch position he he's not in in the same position as trout he's more behind center with his head and his upper body you know so the old school kind of 60 40 feel you know is where some guys might be at but for me we're going to try and stay away from that with the upper body as much as we possibly can. If it's a little bit more behind center for an individual 
and it works for him great you know i mean that that's 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 him that's his individual side of things you know and if it's a little bit more in the center of the body like maybe like a trout or somebody um you know that that's him so it's it's relative to the individual but i think that there is some some common characteristics there at launch position um you know we talk about a lot about where the where the hands at launch position and you see so many guys nowadays are coiling and getting this big old scap load and really really in my opinion they're compromising their line they're compromising their ability to get on plane um without disrupting our front side and that, that gets us into a whole new kind of scheme of things and i'm sure you'll take us that route here in a second but uh, just to get back to you know that 50 50 position is ultimately it's is look at the context first because you got to make sure that what you're looking at is in relationship to the context that you think it's in you know yeah, for sure, for sure. So let's let's go ahead and hit on that a little bit while you're while you're talking about it. Whenever this is me trying uh, to understand what you're saying through audio, and so whenever you're saying coil, for you, I think that that it sounds like you're saying whenever you're taking the back hip and then like twisting it towards the plate. Uh, the well, I guess both hips are connected, but you're taking both hips and you're twisting them more towards the plate while you're moving forward. Is that what I'm trying to? Again, with audio, it's kind of tough, but I'm like holding my hands together right now, simulating a hip socket. <laughs> but basically, you're holding the ground with your back leg and then you're taking your hips and moving them more towards the plate in more of like a closed off fashion. So, if that is hip coil and that's what you're talking about, what problems does that lead to? Yeah, actually, I wasn't talking about hip coil. I was actually talking about the upper body, like the shoulders okay. diving in and turning in, okay. the big old scap load of the top hand and back elbow. But uh, the hip coil is kind of, you know, it's being taught a lot, you know, and I think it kind of goes into the individual thing for me is, is like, if, I, if someone's hip is loading up really like definitively, you can see it, um, but it's happening naturally and it's not affecting the upper body, then that's a phenomenal move. That move really works well. You know, what we, what we fear is, is we fear the guys that are working on loading the hip and, and then immediately their shoulders are diving in and turning in and, and just creating this giant counterbalance move. Um, you know, that, that to me is, is where I'm going to, I'm going to kind of get steer away from the hip coil stuff. Okay, it it gotcha. should be based on their gather and their move it is naturally getting them into the glute. It's naturally loading, you know, what people would call loading that hip up and kind of cocking that hip. I've heard back butt cheek towards the pitcher, you know, I've heard front butt cheek towards the pitcher, you know, whatever you want to call it, that coil, that hip move, if it's natural when you got somebody doing it without thinking, um, and, and it's keeping the body in balance at the same time and giving us more control on the forward move. Phenomenal. Awesome. You know, but the second it starts to get into my upper body, the second it starts to get me out of my line and get me off that ball, um, you know, I, I'm going to fear, especially against high-level pitching, I'm going to fear that they're going to have to compensate in one way or another, whether it's cheating on the fastball too much, that now we have a huge hole down in the way on breaking balls, um, or we're sitting breaking balls and now we're blown away on fastballs, right? So, Oh, great explanation. Everyone's different. Though. And, and thank you. Thank, yeah. <laughs> let, let, let's preface the, preface the episode by saying this all works for somebody and there are always outliers. So you don't have to you know continue to, to <laughs> say it just because I, I'll probably put an asterisk over uh this is advice um to try with everyone but obviously there's going to be outliers uh you mentioned scap load uh what is what is scap load uh you know honestly I, it, you watch the guys kind of teaching it or what they're looking for and 
and you're, you're seeing that top hand kind of make that kind of like a row like move where they're pinching the back elbow um, kind of behind them and they're taking that top hand and, and loading it behind them like um, to their spine you know and people are yeah like yeah it's really it's like you imagine that if I had my hand on like my top hand on like the white line of the batter's box and then I'm going to immediately load it off the white line behind me you know it's kind of like you're you're starting a lawnmower or something like you're pulling gotcha. to load that that top hand back there and and to a certain degree it, it's people are constituting it with a power move and you know for us it's so much more about game hitting it and you start implementing power moves that are taking you off the ball we're not going to hit better in the game at least at least not for the long run of things you know you might take a young guy that's you know, quote unquote, a punching Judy type hitter where they just, you know, are just, you know, pushing at the ball too much. And then you put him in that position, he might be better, you know, for that time being, you know, so that's kind of also the level of play you're dealing with, you know, might play a role there. And then obviously, like we always talked about it, this whole, whole podcast so far is that everyone's a little bit different. You know, you're going to look at some of these guys on TV and you're going to see some guys that are, you know, scap loading that elbow back there and trapping the hands too much but their overall ability still allows them to be successful doing that, you know, that's, that's, that's individually based. Gotcha. Okay. So you mentioned that coil and scap load, and I, I think the term that you used was takes you off of your line or takes you off of your path. Whenever you're talking about your line or your path, what, what can you give us an explanation of what that is? Yeah. Yeah. I think actually, uh, Robert Vance, somebody that I had the opportunity to talk to, um, about hitting, you know, kind of on and off throughout the last couple of years as well is he talks about watching the swing start without the shoulders. You know, you want to see, when I see somebody kind of dropping into that slot with that back elbow and initiating that swing, you're not seeing the shoulders, you know, getting initiated right away. You're seeing everything kind of develop. And then as we go to rotate, the shoulders are obviously going to move. So when we're talking about the line, um, you know, getting their hands into a position that now, they're free they're, They have this uh, unique ability to just work basically more direct is if I'm trapping my hands behind my body, I tell young kids all the time, I'm not a ghost, right? I can't swing through my body. Right. Mm-hmm. So if my hands are trapped behind my head or behind my body, then I have to make some, some form of a move with my front side, or I have to detach my hands and, you know, basically cast out, um, to, to get back in the line. And at that point we're working within compensation, um, and we're just going to be less accurate uh, or have to make our decisions too early. So we're really looking at getting the hands into a position at launch um, that is, is more direct. And we like to use the batter's box line. I think that line is a great example. Now, granted, for every guy that walks in my cage, I have a, a multiple guys that their hands are too far away from their body at launch position too. So they're like too far out, you know. So those guys actually – would benefit from adding maybe a little bit of like a scap like move to it just to get their hands into line. So it's a little bit different per individual. Um, and I had a couple of pro guys that come to mind that I've actually worked with that, you know, one guy's had to start the hands further away from the body so that they can kind of naturally kind of suck into the body to get in the line. And then someone actually had to do the opposite and start them a little bit more over the shoulder and let them kind of work out away from the body to get in the line. So it's completely two different routes for two different individuals. Sure. That's really, really good. And again, thank you for the, for the context there too. So when we get to, when we get to 50, 50, when we get to front foot down, what launches a swing from there? Like what, what are some different ways that, that you uh, teach triggering in the swing? 
Well, that's a tough one. That's always a tough one because the, the brain is so much different. Uh, everyone's vision is different. Everyone's moving different. So that's going to be a little bit different for everybody. But I think the ultimate thing for me is the ball, right? Like we, we talk so much about the ball. The ball is going to trigger your swing. So if you're super late getting ready all the time and you're always on your backside and the ball's triggering your swing before you're getting to the ground, you know, I, I'm going to talk about ground connection for sure and getting to 50-50 and getting to flat feet. But ultimately, the difference there is timing, right? Like if they can get that guy to get ready earlier and, and get him making his move to see better, then ultimately the ground connection is going to improve right away. So kind of that whole root cause thing is like, okay, one thing leads to another thing. Mm -hmm. What is that main thing that we need to work on first? And understanding better timing is oftentimes one of the best routes for any kind of adjustment, um, you know, to, to a certain degree. Obviously, we're going to improve things through some small drill stuff too. And, and kind of break the swing down into some some smaller pieces. But I think the the least we can do that, the better off we are. Because this breaking swings down into smaller pieces is not natural. It's not game hitting. You know, it's just trying to create a feel. Um, but ultimately, triggering the swing is just going to be solely based off of timing. And I think that our reaction to the pitch itself is going to breed different kind of triggers, right? I think okay. you know naturally, if you're sitting fastball timing, you're making a clean move to fifty fifty. And it's a fastball, you know, three quarters of the way, and then it turns into a, a nasty slider down the way. The, the reaction my body's going to have on that is put, potentially going to be different than, you know, if I'm, you know, sitting dead red fastball and get the fastball. So it, it's, it's, it's the open skill training versus the closed skill training because mm -hmm. in a closed skill environment, there's really no variable change. It's really, you know, your outcome. You know, the, the ball's not moving or the ball's sitting on a tee or even in like some of these flippies that are just down the middle and slow every time. You know, there's just not enough variable change to, you know, say that that's game hitting. Game hitting is an open skill environment. We have to be adaptable. We have to be able to adjust on the fly. Um, and that's everything. And that's where the trigger stuff can kind of get a little bit tricky because if I'm forcing somebody to trigger my swing in a certain way, then they might lose the ability to adjust on a certain pitch that they had a solution to before. And you just push that out of them. And we see that a lot. You start seeing that a lot with all these different kind of like, you know, philosophies that these coaches are teaching is that sometimes they're actually taking hitters adjustments and actually coaching those out of them um, to a certain degree. And that's, that's, that's a potential, you know, room for disaster there. Cause now you're making somebody do something um, in a forceful manner that is not in relationship to open skill environment or life hitting. Right. So that's a tricky one. Ultimately mm -hmm. I would say, I would say the ground, I think, especially, you know, a couple of years ago, I would 100% say the ground. And I, I believe that the ground is the ultimate trigger, but you, you still, still see guys on 98 in that are, you know, getting the backside going maybe a split second before the front heels down and, uh, and hitting homers on those pitches and, and vice versa. So it's sure. definitely going to be, uh, based upon adjustability, based upon the individual, based upon, you know, the timing of everything. So mm -hmm. Yeah, really question, super, super context specific, uh, especially with game video. And you mentioned that earlier, but I think that that's something that, that needs to be said again. So over the last maybe five, maybe seven, eight years, uh, there's been a uh, there's been a push for barrel depth. And I, I think I know whenever I was growing up, it was like uh, try and get your hands to the ball out front uh, and, and chop down was used a lot. Right. And then, uh, yep. and now we have, we have, uh, barrel depth has been a term that, that has been used by a lot, a lot of people over the last several years. Uh, and 
Uh, and so you, just what are your thoughts on, on what that means? Like what, what is good depth versus bad? Can you kind of explain that, that to us a little bit? Yeah, I, I think I, I'm a pretty good guy to kind of find that, that kind of fine line there because I grew up in the generation of kind of swing down to create backspin. Mm-hmm. Um, I very kind of check mark, um, really not kind of behind ball through ball. It's kind of more down the ball. And, and then you're trying to stay through the ball, but it's a little more difficult, especially as the ball's moving down. Um, and that's kind of what pioneered the whole change in the fly ball generation is you, you got, you know, two guys, Craig Wallenbach and Doug Lotta in the early 2000s that are looking at all of the instruction being taught is to swing down and chop. Um, and what are all these, these major league pitchers doing back then was sinkers, sliders, change-ups, splitters, everything moving down. So, you know, they're, they're throwing the ball down with movement down and guys are pounding the ball into the ground with these choppy swings. So they look at that and go, okay, what's the opposite of that? You know, how do I beat these pitchers now? Okay, well, I got to get my barrel head to get more depth or, or get behind the ball earlier, get in the zone earlier, and then carry that through the zone longer so I have more room for air and I have a little bit more natural, you know, kind of arc coming through. And I think a lot of people would hear that and argue that Ted Williams talked about that a very long time ago, and somehow we all went off that um, in some shape or form, you know. But I think, you know, you, you see things kind of come in cycles, right? You, you see, okay – you know, everyone's pounding the ball down. Let's hit the ball in the air. Well, what are the Astros doing right now? You know, the Astros are our high spin rate, four seams up right now, and carving hitters, you know, at least up until last year. And, you know, they're, they're high spin up in the zone, and these guys trying to hit the ball in the air with and underneath everything, you know. So you, you kind of see that full circle in the world of hitting. You know, it's almost like nothing's really new. It's just it's just it's the new era is working against this pitch, and then we have to adjust. And it's just going to be a constant – kind of adjustment, right? And I think that's where you can start getting into game planning and talking about how you would game plan versus different pitchers uh, based on what you're trying to do to that baseball. It might be a little bit different for each guy, uh, which is a pretty cool conversation and a lot of fun for hitting because I love game planning. It's so sure. fun. Um, but ultimately, I, I truly think that, uh, you know, barrel depth to me is, is really, it's a, it's, it has a lot of different pieces to it. But in the, the simplest form, it's kind of, you know, your barrel works from up and then it works down the plane and then it works through plane um, and just maximizing our ability to be late and hit a line drive and be early and still, you know, still hit a line drive. I talk a lot about not pulling the ball that's in and not taking the in pitch or pick, taking the ball away and hitting it away is we really don't have time to think at that level, especially against 90 mile or fastballs and above is that we can't think we just got to react. Right. So if, if our job is to take a great swing or whatever that may be, and I'm a little bit early on away. Well, if I'm hitting through it the right way, I should probably pull that ball in the air. I mean, I watch Trout destroys my Mariners all day long on the sliders down and away where he pulls them over the left center fielder's head or over the wall. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, so it, it just to me is it's, it's all about the timing of things. And, and that's really where barrel depth comes into play is that these guys are so good at that level. So if I have more room for air, I'm, I'm better off because of that. Um, you know, immediately. So my misses become better in that way. We all know what it feels like to just get it perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, that perfect ball, middle end, left center. But what is it when you're off? What is it when you're late? Is it a, you know, a line drive up the middle? Um, you know, J.D. Martinez is a great example. Here's a guy that can take a middle end fastball and hit it out to dead center. Um, and he can take a, a breaking ball away and hit it out to left field. You know, he can take a, anything in and pull it to left field as well. It's just timing is going to dictate that a little bit. But I, I think that, uh, you know, we're trying to be able to hit multiple pitches in the same swing. 
And that's where barrel depth kind of plays a role. You know, mm-hmm. that the ball stays up and it, it kind of rides through that four seam. You know, my barrel's working in into depth and it's kind of working from up to down in a way. Um, naturally, then it, that barrel's going to run through that pitch and be fine. But if that pitch turns into something moving down at the last second, since my barrel's entering on the way down, then I can just continue down and actually make that adjustment mid-swing, you know. So that's um, that's a huge bonus, especially against really, really good pitching. Um, and, you know, in my swing growing up, I was a little steep, I was a little choppy, uh, created a lot of backspin, and I had really, really good hand-eye coordination um, so I get away with it a little bit. You know, I still actually remember I was 18 years old, uh, facing Tyson Ross and Chris Tillman, um, out of Bannerwood over here in, uh, in Bellevue, Washington and the, the regional for Connie Mac. And I just remember that, like seeing those movements, just being like, I don't know if my swing has a solution to this. You know, I closed my eyes and got lucky a couple of times, but, uh, <laughs> you know, that's not going to last in a long scheme of things, but. Okay, so you so talked. That's you a great talk, question. The barrel depth. Yeah, thank you. So you talked about yeah. uh, you talked about the barrel working down, and so uh, again, I, I'm going to try and, and and take what you said, and then I'm I'm picturing it in my mind, and I, I'm trying to uh, to try and see what what you meant. So whenever it's working down, so you're talking about elbows coming down, and then barrel head is going like down to the top of the barrel is going to the catcher. Uh, the I mean, you're not going to force that move to happen it kind of like when we get into like i've heard the verbiage lag okay like as my hands start driving forward the barrel starts to kind of fall um and it does kind of start to point towards that catcher a little bit you know so like that's kind of more of a byproduct i'm not going to ever tell somebody to lay their bat head backwards um you know or or to to feel like they're going to hit the catcher's glove in their swing. Mm-hmm. I think there's different routes that we can take to get that to happen. Sure. Um, but a lot of it also is dependent on where the hands are launching from. You know, I, I think that, and also what the feel is, right? So like somebody with higher hand launch position, they're probably going to feel like they're swinging down a little bit more than someone with a lower hand launch position. Mm-hmm. Someone with a lower hand launch position, maybe like a Justin Turner hand launch position, they're probably thinking a little bit more along the lines of just direct, you know, just kind of forward. And then the barrel will naturally fall. It's kind of what gravity does to that heavier barrel. The barrel, as I'm moving, the barrel just kind of naturally falls under the hands into the zone. And really, as long as we're not manipulating the barrel head and we're launching that barrel with that backside, then that process should, uh, should kind of naturally happen to a certain degree. I think strength plays a role um, in a few different factors there. But ultimately, like when we're talking about that, you know, what, what will you look at? Like when people call flat swings I, and I still, I'm kind of in the, the verbiage of like, when I hear someone say a flat swing, I don't consider that a, a good verbiage. I consider that a bad thing. And in hindsight, I could be sitting here talking to, you know, somebody next to me that's saying a flat swing and we might be saying the same darn thing. And it's just terminology difference. Right. So like, that's just where it is, but the whole windmill versus like, uh, you know, kind of Ferris wheel thing or, or kind of uh, like a CD, like where you're kind of flat, you know, Mm -hmm. the terminology we kind of stick with is kind of east to west versus north to south. You know, we're we're trying to run that barrel kind of more north to south um, than east to west. And, and, And oftentimes a flat barrel at launch position kind of leads into that kind of flat entry and the bat head wants to make a move out and then it wants to come across the front side, you know, and you might be strong when the ball's, you know, away from you and you're a little bit late, you might be able to drive the ball to right side um, pretty successfully. But the second that you're early, you're always capping the ball or whiffing off speed um, or you're always getting blown up and breaking bats on balls in. Mm-hmm. 
then then we're not going to be able to cover the zone in, in multiple speeds and pitches. You know, and that's what our ultimate goal is, is to be able to cover as much of that, that zone as possible, right. you know, with success over a long period of time. So, you know, you start seeing a lot more like high barrel at launch position, um, which kind of promotes the barrel head kind of staying up rather than kind of flattening out. I know there, there was some stuff being taught um, for a while, I, you know, some of the Donaldson stuff where, you know, guys are talking about tipping and then, you know, flattening out the barrel and just turning the shoulders. And, and you know, it might work for, for some guys. It might, but I, I just don't see that being the fix, um, you know, for, for a lot of guys. I think that actually hurts more than it helps um, to a certain degree. But it's all within context. It's all within the individual, like we've, we've been talking about through this whole process. But, mm-hmm. you know, that, that barrel depth, it's definitely vital against great pitching. You can be a little bit more steep and choppy against, you know, average to below average pitching and kind of get away with it with, you know, elite hand-eye coordination and, and athleticism. So, you know, but we're, we're really trying to find that balance of, like, what's right for this kid right now. It obviously mm-hmm. depends on the level and the age and where they might be getting to, you know, so someone that – that might not be, you know, wanting to play college baseball or someone that doesn't want to play at the next level. Let's make sure that what they're doing right now allows them to enjoy it and have fun, you know, and obviously still continue to get better as long as they're playing, but it might not be the same route I take with somebody that I know is going to have an opportunity to play at the next level at a higher level. It might be a little bit more advanced, a little bit more different for that individual just based on that. You know, we're looking for more long-term for some guys and potentially a little bit more short-term for others, just depending on that situation of that individual. I love that. Oh, great explanation. And, uh, and man, it's, you're doing a fantastic job. I just want to tell you that and commend you for that. Cause I'm, I'm trying to like picture in your, in my mind of, of the different things that you're saying. And, and a lot of it definitely, definitely makes sense. Uh, so, so let's talk a little bit about timing. I mean, obviously we can't do a show about hitting without talking timing. And I, I, you know, for a long time, I thought the timing was innate and I, I still think to an extent that it is, uh, and it's, it's, our understanding of where our body is moving in space and time. And I, I think that, that it, but it, I'd also think that we can give them some different checkpoints uh, to help them throughout that process if they just feel uh, completely off time. And timing is everything. Like, like we, we sat here for an hour and talked hitting mechanics. And, and like you said, if you're off time, uh, even with perfect hitting mechanics, you're not going to be a very good hitter. Uh, but timing is, is a huge part of it. So Walk us through how you would teach timing. Are there checkpoints that you use? Uh, and obviously it's all context specific on the hitter and the hitter's mechanics too. Uh, but just what are some different things that, that you use and, and how do you teach it? You know, that's, I mean, it's really like if we, if we knew the ultimate answer to teaching timing, we'd all have a, a billion dollars because that's, uh, that's kind of the intangible that, mm-hmm. that is, you know, quote unquote, the, the sixth sense of hitting, right? It's like, that uh, that kind of holy grail of hitting is going to be how do you teach timing? And I've talked to plenty of hitting coaches that I really respect that are great hitting coaches that do say what you just said is in terms of like hitting and timing is just natural. It's just what they do, you know. And I, but I, for me, I've taught timing for the last 10, 12 years. I think you have to. Um, and, you know, I've tried all the routes of, you know, like go on this or do this or, you know, here's your marker here and this checkpoint here. And for some guys, it's having a little checkpoint of mm-hmm. just kind of like, hey, you know, you're, you're getting up on, on handbrake and you're trying to get forward on pitch release. Um, you know, sometimes that just flat out clicks for them, right? And just mm-hmm. even showing them video 
and I do a lot of rear view video just for watching timing. And our hack attack has the auto feeder with the ramp. So we actually have a little bit of a timing mechanism there. Once it hits the ramp, uh, we kind of consider that like handbrake. And then as the ball shoots out, that'd be pitch release, right? So, you know, it gives you a little bit of that mechanism. And when you film from rear view and you watch a guy roast a, a fastball in the right center gap when he's, he's making a clear-cut forward move um, or a move to the ground, it doesn't have to be thought of as forward. It can just be thought of as, as going to the ground as part of that, you know, to read the pitch, to see the pitch out of hand. And immediately, the very next one, they, they are just stuck over the back leg and the ball's out of the machine and they haven't made their move yet to see and they get blown up and they spin and fly open or whatever it is, you know? So they, if you show them that and say, look, like here's a clear cut move to see, you know, here's a go to see versus a, a sit and read, um, you know, and then here's the next one where you struggled, where you're sitting and reading just by showing them that context. And like, here's, here's the difference in the timing of things, you know, that can really help promote that, you know, but ultimately some guys can't sit in the box and sit up there and go, okay, where's handbrake, where's handbrake, where's handbrake. You're, you're thinking way too much. You're screwed. Right. Mm-hmm. So at that point, it's, it's so vital that you're training that move to start at that time without thinking. That's the ultimate key to it. And I think that's where the best guys at timing you know, probably don't think much about timing. They just naturally move more on time just based on the reps that they've done in their lifetime or what they've been working on specifically in relationship to timing. And then it just translates over, right? Like when I first get, I get a lot of guys on the internet that are sending me video of their hitters, um, guys they work with or players that just send me their videos. Um, you know, and I like to help anybody I possibly can, you know, sometimes it takes me a couple of days to get back to them, but you know, typically I'm, I'm getting back to everybody to some shape or form. And, you know, when we're, when we're looking at it, they are, they're typically sending flips. They're sending, you know, side view without any context of what they're facing. And my first response to everyone is always, where's the game film? Do you have game film? Game film is like the, is like the all for me. Is that, you know, some guys move a little bit differently in flips and a little bit differently in the cage than they might in the game. And we want to know the difference. You know, why are you more on time in the game than you are in the cage? Or most often it's the, the opposite effect of that. Why are you off time in the game and you're on time in the cage so much? Let's look at that translation. Let's look at that difference between what you're doing and how you're moving inside versus what you're doing and how you're moving in the game. You know, sometimes it's as simple as just showing them the timing and saying, Hey, look, you know, here you got up on, on handbrake and you're getting forward on pitch release. Um, or you're even getting up, you know, slightly before handbrake to, you know, trying to kind of jump the gun a little bit got to be careful on that because the old, uh, you know, Johnny Quatos and Strowman's of the world will get you. No doubt. But, uh, you know, so, yeah, they're good enough as it is. And then they can all, all of a sudden start doing that stuff. It's not even fair. But we don't like to give them too much credit, though. Yeah, no, they, doubt. Uh, no doubt. They still have an ERA. Yeah. <laughs> they still have an ERA, exactly. So with... But, uh, yeah, I think teaching timing is, is very difficult. It's also the... The, the number one thing that we should, we should be working on is timing. And that's, that's where so much of what we do is, is, is changing the distances, changing the speeds. I throw a lot of fastball curveball mix, a lot of fastball slider mix. Um, I'm obviously blessed with the ability to do that. Not every coach can do that, but um, you know, if I, if I couldn't do that, if my arm breaks today, you know, I'm hiring a couple of younger guys, a couple of ex pitchers, a couple of guys with some BP feel to come in and throw fastball curveball mix. I think it's so vital because sitting on a machine is, is great because we get that velocity, we get that challenge, but ultimately it's a machine and it's the same pitch every time to a certain degree, depending on what machine you have. Um, so anywhere we can get uh, that kind of live feel 
is going to really benefit us. And it really forces the approach to work within the timing. You know, when we're doing slider machine, um, I'm running slider machine. I'm forcing guys to understand that if they're timing the slider right now, they're not working in terms of open skill environment. But if I can get you to be on a machine with a slider and time the fastball on the move and then promote that natural adjustment that you would have in the game, I think that we can work on game timing on the machine in that setting, but they have to understand that context. They have to understand why they're trying to do it that way rather than just sitting slider you know, and, and trying to annihilate a slider. Cause in the game, we don't know the sliders coming, right? right? That's, that's something that we have to be able to react to. And we're trying to promote that environment when we're doing it. Um, Doug Lott is, uh, his chaos drill is phenomenal. I, I really think it's awesome. Some guys really don't like it just cause it's uncomfortable to have your eyes closed, but you know, basically chaos drills, you have your eyes closed, the hitters in the box, eyes are closed. And then the feeder gives you a verbal, uh, I think, you know, most of the time it's, it's a go verbal. It's like, Hey, go. And when they hear go, they're supposed to make their move and open their eyes at the same time. And so you're pretty much fully in control of their timing. And it's a great way to implement that earlier move, um, that kind of go to see kind of thought process um, uh, that what, you know, starts to breed really good timing to a certain degree. But like we always been talking about in this whole podcast is it's going to be individually based on what they're doing, what their move is. And then obviously, you know, what the context of that translation from case to game really truly is. Sure. You mentioned that you really like game planning and that, that can mean a lot of different uh, things based on the level that, that the player is at based on the level uh, that the coach that's listening is at. And so let's just start with uh, game planning for big league guys and then let's work it down to how you help. Cause you're still a, you're an amateur coach of an 18 U team. Uh, you work with teenagers and so let, but let's start with the big league guys whenever they're calling you and they're talking about, you know, this or that, or, or how do you, how do you help them to get ready for games? Yeah. The, the level of play is going to be huge because the amount of information that we have on the opposing pitcher um, is going to really change how we can game plan, right? Like in terms of like my 18 year old team or game playing youth baseball is we don't have these advanced scouting reports. If anything, you know, maybe a couple guys on the team have faced this guy in high school ball or have faced this guy in previous years of select ball. So they have a basic idea of, you know, what the guy's like, but they don't understand spin rate. They don't understand, you know, like the, the, the different axes of the ball and how it's going to move and, and how it's going to come out of different arm angles. You know, so with those guys, you, you got to really just kind of simplify. We're going to keep it really simple. We're going to go, okay, what does the fastball look like? You know, is it four seam and flat and straight? Does it have a little life on it at the end where it kind of seems like it kind of jumps on you, almost has a little bit of that rise effect where you know that that guy's got a little bit more, you know, natural, you know, spin rate on that fastball, you know, versus the guy that kind of throws that, you know, drop ball or the gravity ball or the sinker. Um, you know, we're not going to face as many elite sinkers at the youth level, if, if hardly any at all. Um, so it's a little bit easier. But, you know, for instance, my... Two years ago, I still remember my, my 18-year-old team, we were, we were playing in a tournament, and there was a couple college recruiters out there, um, you know, kind of watching the starting pitcher that we were about to face. And he was like, hey, you guys are in for a tough day. One of the guys that I talked to, one of the, the, the college scouts, and you guys are in for a tough day. This guy's really – I watched him throw 19 ground balls at a 21 ounce the last time he threw. He's 88 with nasty sink. And I'm like, man, you just gave me the, the key to the castle here. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So I go back to my dugout, and I'm like, hey, guys, we're going to hit the ball to the moon today. I want you to try and hit the ball as high as you possibly can today because this guy is going to get you to hit the top of the ball. 
if you're trying to hit line drives. So let's really try and hit this ball as high as we can. We scored 10 runs in the first inning. Oh, so, that. And that guy was good. He was 88 with sink. And my guys are good hitters and, and really bought into that adjustment and went out there and just hit line drives all over the place. I don't even think we hit one fly ball. Um, but we didn't hit any ground balls either. It was just a bunch of rockets. It was pretty cool to see. You know, so I turn and look at the coach, and he's like, what did you do? And it's like, you gave me the, you gave me the answer. You gave me, you're literally giving me the answer to the problem, and that's it. You know, and at that point, you, know, you start looking up in the zone a little bit because the sinker's going to be down and the slider's going to be down. You know, so if we can get the ball up a little bit and then have a plan of getting the ball in the air, we can counteract with how this guy's going to beat us. You know what I mean? And, and vice versa. You go face somebody pumping 92 around here, it's probably going to be relatively flat, you know, with some decent spin. And, and you get in there and you're like, okay, this thing's everyone's missing under. Everyone's, you know, chasing the up pitch. You know, we got to make sure we lower the eyes a little bit. And, uh, and we're really going to aim more on the top side of the ball. We're not going to change our swings ever. It's just more of a plan. It's just we're planning on if I miss against this guy, it's going to be hitting a ground ball, you know, off of his feet up the middle. It's going to be a rocket on the ground, you know, if I miss. And, and oftentimes that, that plan doesn't correlate to hitting the ball off the ground. It just it gets us more on plane and we end up hitting line drives because that's the ultimate goal. I never want to have somebody trying to hit a ground ball to the point that they're changing their mechanics to do so. Mm-hmm. It's much more along the line of just giving them a simple plan that's going to help them against what they're facing. You know? And then obviously the more data we have, the more we can get in, you know, into the in-depth side of that game planning stuff, um, which is pretty fun. But I would always just start with what's the fastball doing? Is it cutting? Is it sinking? Is it rising? You know, what's that fastball doing? And I can base everything off of that fastball. Um, to a certain degree, and then really just trying to eliminate off-speed pitches or understand what he has control of um, and where his comfort is on what counts he wants to throw those pitches in. Because like anybody, pitchers get into habits, they get into patterns. You know, coaches calling pitches are are oftentimes very generic, especially at the younger age levels, um, you know, and how they're calling pitches. So we we can start to adapt and adjust during the game as well based on what we're seeing and what we're doing, you know. No, really, really good, and I love that story. And and so I usually end with a with a couple of different quick hitters, but I th- I think I'm going to uh, do yours a little bit different. So I'm gonna I'm going to talk about just an aspect of the swing or uh, timing today, and uh, just the different things that we've covered today. And then would you be willing to share a drill uh, per each of those that I? And, and if you don't feel comfortable, we can always cut this out later. But uh, let's just start with like forward move. And uh, we talked about setup with the mirrors earlier. But what's like one drill that you really like? Uh, and it doesn't really matter the age. Uh, and you can make it age specific if you want. But like what's, what's one drill that, that your players really like or that you've gotten a ton of good feedback for as far as like helping them with the forward move? Yeah, I would say it's kind of like a two-part drill. It's really it's, it's you're working the same thing, but we we kind of have guys start off. We actually call the we call it the Bellinger drill, just because <laughs> excuse me, every young kid nowadays understands what Bellinger does and what he looks like to a certain degree. So we go feet together, and we just kind of call it feet together push. You got to be careful in like what you're trying to push forward with. It's really just kind of feet together, go forward. Um, we kind of start with that, just getting them more comfortable with a linear movement, getting them more comfortable moving in balance, getting them more comfortable, like timing a ball on the forward move, um, getting them more comfortable, not shifting back. And then from there we go right into the step over drill. I know the step over drill, I got it from Doug for sure. 
And you just take a piece of plywood or take a bat, or you can even just draw a piece of tape on the ground. It doesn't have to be a bulky item. And you just get into your, your setup, maybe a hair more narrow than you normally would. And then you're just going to naturally make the move over that board in front of you. Um, you know, and you can see the guys that want to sit and reach, they oftentimes like land on the board. That's where the drill can get a little bit dangerous. If you get some young guys that actually step onto the board (laughs) as they're trying to swing, you can can roll some ankles there. I've actually never seen it happen, but you kind of got to, you know, give them a little bit of context and make them understand that their goal is to make a move over that board with their head, shoulder, hip, knee, and butt, you know, all together. So they're getting that move in balance opposed to just kind of sitting back and reaching out. Um, you know, someone like Goldschmidt's move might, might struggle a little bit on that drill per se. So not necessarily for everybody, but mm-hmm. great drill to kind of promote that forward move and just kind of get hitters to, to start freeing up their bodies. As you see so many of the young hitters that come in our cages are, are widened out and they're just, you know, shifting back and just getting them a little bit more naturally athletic just by standing them up and just freeing them up and getting the feet, you know, somewhere in relationship to the shoulders and, and just say, Hey man, I just want you to work on going forward right now. And then, yeah, then you'll see how that kind of translates over. Is it, does they take that idea and start lunging or do they take that idea and start doing it with the, the you know, the hips sliding forward, but the head stays back. Mm-hmm. And then you just kind of working within those, you know, parameters of balance and, and, and getting guys to do it from there. But that is very simple kind of set of drills that we do oftentimes. Mm-hmm. I do the step over drill in the mirror all the time. We, we make the move over it and we make the move reverse, um, you know, kind of that co-centric, eccentric uh, kind of mirror work, dry work that we, we put in just to kind of feel out that move um, and see what we're doing and how we're doing it. And then we can take that drill right into flippies and, 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 and even into BP as well. So That's really, really good. What about hand path? And I know you mentioned you didn't like focusing on the barrel, so I, I, I'm assuming we can use path or depth. Uh, what are some different things that are different implements that you use or different drills that you like for those? Yeah, there's got to be a, a zillion of them. There's just so many of the, so many different random things you can do. You know, we do the chuckets, you get the dog toy and you use the chuckets with top hand only. Uh, we even do it a little bit with two hands. You know, you get into uh, some of the frisbee toss stuff where you're working on throwing that frisbee or kind of skipping that rock kind of feel for the top-handed feel. Um, you know, you can get into some modified one-handed stuff. You know, for me, I, I think that my favorite pass drill, um, it's, it's, it's really hard to throw out like one pass drill that I would do, you know, for everybody. But I do like doing some swing stuff with guys where their back's up against the net. You got to be really careful. I see the guys doing it on, on Twitter where they have the net and they're, they're having guys hit against it. And these guys are running into the net. I really worry about guys' wrists at that point. Like, mm-hmm. you get that back caught in that net, and then you, you keep going. It is, you know, you might do something to your wrist or your hand. So you got to be very careful there. So oftentimes I'll actually use a foam roller. I got kind of a foam roller. that Not a foam roller. It's kind of like a floaty, like one of those pool noodles. Mm-hmm. And I shove the pool noodle into like a cone. So it just kind of stands there. And if they hit it, they hit it. It doesn't break it or anything. It's just light. And uh, I put that kind of like right off their front hip, kind of behind them slightly, so that if they're cutting themselves off, they'll knock it down. So they really have to work that north to south and that naturally kind of more more high finish. The finish is going to gotcha. be a byproduct of different things. But, you know, it's a very simple drill just to kind of promote that north to south. Um, we I have these light bats. They're basically like those really nice kind of wiffle ball bats that are – 
that are like the nicer black rolling ones. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we actually, we actually throw them. We will get at the home plate and we'll say, Hey, I want you just to throw that thing over the pitcher's head and release it. And the guys that are kind of cutting off or they're working East to West, you know, they're going to throw it on the pole side of things. And, you know, the guys that aren't, aren't releasing the barrel header, they're kind of pushing a little bit. They're just going to kind of maybe throw it to the opposite field a little bit. So those are kind of, there are field drills that you can kind of feel the path and you can kind of feel what North to South is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there's, there's just so many cool little weird drills you can do with the path. Um, but ultimately I think anything that's going to be full swing, I'm going to like better than some of the other things like the, the, the truckets are great and the frisbees are great and the one hands are great, but ultimately if you can find a path drill that's t- based on two hands, it's always going to be better than one. Okay. I like that. So this is, this is kind of an off the script question, but I, I think that, you know, the age that we're in, uh, this is becoming more and more important every single year and every single player that we work with. So kids are, I don't want to say more well-informed than ever, but they have more information than ever. And so how do you, how do you help players to own what they're doing? And I, I don't know how this is, this is coming off, but I just, I want the players to understand who they are and what they do well, their strengths and weaknesses and, and to own their process and regardless of who their hitting coach is, right? Because if you're, if you're talking with you, they might be with you for several years, but whether you're a high school coach, you're an amateur coach, you're in pro ball, you may only have a guy for a couple of months, a couple of weeks, one or two sessions, but they need to be their own best hitting coach, right? They need to understand how to make adjustments between pitches, to make adjustments between at-bats, to make adjustments between games and days. And so what is your process in helping players with that? Because I think, I think it's a, you know, we can, we can talk about all of these different things and, and we do a lot and I, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, but the player has to own it and they have to go do the work. And I know that you know that. So how do you help them with that process? Yeah, that's, that's the, the ultimate thing. I, actually, I do have a quick story on that. Um, that actually really changed and opened my eyes to it. I flew out to California and got to, to stay the night with Doug a few nights and got to hang out at the cage with him and kind of watch him work and, and see his work with his hitters. And that was something I took away from that was, was really like watching his hitters coach themselves and fully understand their misses. And, and really like there was a couple of sessions where it was like, you know, Doug's in there flipping and feeding the machine and stuff. And it's like, man, these guys don't even need it. You know, these guys fully understand what they're doing. You know, I, I would have full you know confidence that they're going to be able to take that and go run with it and do it themselves and understand the differences. Um, obviously, you know, as hitting coaches, we communicate and we, we're going to continue to be there for you as long as you want us there. Um, we want to help you, you know, know the difference. But the best time in the world, the, the best job you can ever do is getting that hitter to be able to do that on their own because we're not in the box. We're not hitting for them. They're the ones that have to be able to make those adjustments, understand themselves, you know, to a certain degree. Some guys are a little bit more intellectual than others, um, you know, or more in depth. And, but that, that's, that's going to be the, the, the hardest part is, isn't that, I think that has a lot to do with the, the individual hitters, you know, willingness to want to learn, willingness to, you know, put the time and effort in to learn, and then ultimately, you know, just understanding the difference and what they feel and, and obviously what they see because all the technology allows us to see everything we do now. Um, so there's, there's a lot of different pieces and variables there, but ultimately that, that, that's the ultimate goal is that how do we get the hitter to understand what he's doing when he's killing it 
versus when he's struggling and then allowing him to, to know exactly what to do and how to fix it. Um, you know, the hitters that were with me, it's, it's really the, the communication is, is a constant, open, evolving door where we're always communicating. You know, sometimes it's with parents of young kids and we're, you know, we're helping that facilitate that a little bit. And other times it's just with the, the, the hitters themselves. Um, you know, whether that's a 10 year old or a 35 year old vet in the show, it's, it's really that communication is always there. How much they want to utilize that, that communication is huge. And then the, the hard part is, is that, you know, like what we teach and what I teach and what I do is probably different than what most coaches are teaching and seeing and doing or what they were taught. Most coaches, especially around here in the youth, youth world is they're teaching what they were taught. Right. And, and ultimately like, you're going to take pieces of everything you've taught and make your own brand and your own idea of what you think uh, is the, the best way to teach the swings. Right. And that's where I think I'm so blessed in the information that I've come across is that I have so much information from so many great hitting coaches, stuff I like, stuff I don't like. And I've made that into, you know, my own form of that information and just based on what I'm seeing and looking for and how I'm going to implement that information. And, and when you do it individually based, I think that helps the hitter, understand themselves better instead of just saying, you know, all 10 of you guys go do the same thing and, and be the same clone and, and try and, you know, try and do the exact same thing, you know, and your bodies aren't ready to do it that way, or they're not meant to do it that way. You're going to lose hitters. You're not going to get everybody better. And for me, if I got a hundred guys in a room, my goal is to get all hundred of them better. I don't want to, I don't want to lose 10 guys, you know, and you probably will. That's, that's probably normal. But at the end of the day, man, when a guy's struggling and, and I feel like, I feel like it's on me. You know, even though I'm not the one in there hitting, but at the end of the day, I'm like, ah, man, could we have done a better job there? Could we have done something differently here? You know, why is this not translating? And then you start to start to hit home a little bit. There's so many times when you leave a cage and you're like, man, I, I could have done a better job today. You know, and then the next day is a phenomenal day. And that's kind of the, the ebbs and flows of being a hitting coach a little bit. Um, but ultimately, that, that relationship, I think, that you have with your players and that trust, it really kind of breeds that learning environment just that much more and i think that if you can kind of take that and run with it within each individual's mechanics or mentality or thought processes or level of player whatever then now you're at least on the right track to help that hitter become his own best hitting coach uh, one last thing that i would add to that is i would add journals um I, I got i got professionals i got amateurs i got college hitters i got a lot of hitters that come in here and they bring their journals in with them you know they're bringing their journals in with them and they're, uh, you know, they're writing stuff down between rounds and, and taking notes and, and, you know, just writing little small details or big giant book paragraphs, you know, it's just, it's another way to learn and it does help a lot. No, I, honestly, I don't think that there's a better way to end the show than that. That was absolutely fantastic. And Kurt, let me be the first of many people to say thank you for coming on the show and, and just, man, this, this episode was truly, truly packed with a ton of information for hitting coaches everywhere that, that they can steal and take from you. But if they did want to get in touch with you for just anything to talk about, anything that you talked about today or to get in touch with you to maybe come by or, or to work with different players, what would be the best way to do so? Uh, I, I, Twitter's easy. I mean, you can always DM on Twitter. Uh, and, and you know, if, if you, we got a decent little conversation going, I, I pass my number out to a lot of people. I'm not going to throw my phone number onto this thing, but feel free and reach out on Twitter. It's Nelson hitting, um, and, and, and just shoot me a DM and we can get that ball rolling and, and start that communication. And, and, you know, I come up with any answers or questions that we could possibly have. And if I don't have an answer to it, I'll, I'll try and find one, you know, and then we're always an open door out here in Kirkland, Washington too. You know, we got some pretty cool coaches that have actually already flown out here and come learn from us 
in the off seasons, which uh, it sounds like we got a few more coming out this off season, which will be fun. Um, it's always an open door, you know, nothing's, nothing's stolen, you know, for us, it's, we won't, we're, we're all about hitting. We want hitters to be better everywhere. You know, whether you're working with me or you're not, you know, I, I really want the best for, for kids and for, for baseball players. Baseball needs to grow. It needs to get better. Um, so for me, nothing, nothing's a secret. All right. Well, I, I will link that in the show notes and I'm going to mute myself and just let kind of let you roll. But is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners before you go? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like there's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of information and make your own opinions based on that information and through trial and error and being in the trenches with hitters, you're going to figure out the best routes with hitters. You know, don't force feed something just because somebody else said it. You got to try it yourself. You know, we, we talk about it a lot with all of our fun tools. We buy all the new tools that guys are selling out there. You know, we, we buy a lot of them and we, we test them out and make our own opinions on them. And then from there, um, we're going to be better off. But, you know, I, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got came from Raul Abanez. And he said that, uh, you know, don't think like everybody else. Think different. You know, think outside the box. You know, guys like Jeff Bezos and guys like, uh, you know, some of these big Fortune 500 guys and, and all those guys out there. They're all, you know, doing things, you know, crazy different than everybody else. And it pays off in the end, you know. And sometimes you might fail a little bit learning something or trying something. And, but that failure is going to breed success in the long run if you stay with it. So, you know, don't dis- get dis- discouraged if you have a bad day in a cage with a hitter. You know, just go back to the drawing board, and, and the next day you get them in there, you know, you're, you're trying something a little bit different, or maybe it's a different verbal or whatever it is. You know, stay with it. Stay with it and keep working hard. Just remember, it's always about the player. It's always about the player. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, which can include Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it on social media to help get the word out. Once again, thank you for joining us.